The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, must we love our enemies? Is that a great universal truth that all the great religious teachers have instructed? In 2001, after that terrible um, business in New York, I remember watching on SBS uh, a BBC interviewer uh, interviewing one of the leading clerics in Tehran, one of the centres of uh, Shia, one of the great uh, parts of Islam. And the conversation was going quite well. And then the BBC interviewer made a comment that was something like this. He said, um, you know, there are obviously within the Quran statements like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. Um, the, why did the BBC interviewer assume that? Well, he assumed it because there are just certain things that we all know about the great religions of the world. And that is that they're all pretty much the same, even though we probably know nothing about most of them. But we just kind of know that in our culture that all the religions of the world, the differences are really just like the differences between Baptists and Anglicans or, you know, Methodists, and, and we just assume that the great different streams that are just like denominations in Christianity. So we know that at heart they're all the same, even though we actually don't know it. And so this highly educated, beautifully spoken BBC interviewer assumed that. Well, I was interested. You could see the, um, this highly educated Islamic scholar in Iman bristle at that comment. And he very sternly said, no, there is nothing like that in the Quran at all. Um, and then he said, and Jesus never said anything like that either. Well, this confused the journalist because he said, but, it, but it's in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and um, the cleric, the Islamic cleric said, Jesus never said that. Well, the, the journalist looked confused. He said, and, and he went on to say, and, and that's why it's quite, quite clear Muhammad never says anything like turn the other cheek. And he doesn't. There's nothing like that in the Hadiths, the sayings of the Prophet, or in the indications of the early lives of the Prophet, Ibn Ishaq and other things, or in the Quran. Well, the journalist well, how? He said, you Christians lied and put that into the mouth of Jesus. Now, at this point, the journalist was completely befuddled. And of course, if you think about that for a moment, that is exactly what Christians don't do. Uh, frankly, I as a Christian, when I became a Christian in 1974, we spend a lot of our times trying to avoid, trying to work out ways to not have to love our enemies, to not have to turn the other cheek, which is really a response to insult more than violence. And yet the, the imam knew that Jesus didn't say it because Muhammad never says anything like that. The BBC journalist knew that Muhammad must have said something like that because Jesus said it, and we all know that religions are basically all the same. Well, we're going to look at uh, this question. We've been going for some time now, for three weeks, looking at the question of what do Jesus and Muhammad say and model by their actions on how you should treat those who annoy you, aggravate you, blaspheme you, seek to hurt and kill you. What people tend to say, Muslims have said this, and we will have heard them say this even in this building at times, and atheists will say it. Look, all religions suffer the same problem. That is, violent fundamentalist extremists. So most people that get to speak in the microphone in our community would say that Osama bin Laden is not really a Muslim. 
he's an embarrassment. He, he, he really doesn't understand Islam because it's a religion of peace. We all know that. We've been told it hundreds of times. And then I've often said to my friends, well, where are the examples of Christians who are violent biblical extremists? And I've said this to my atheist friends and some of my Islamic friends, and this is the guy that comes up, Timothy McVeigh, who is thankfully fairly well forgotten. It's a shame that some of these horrible people become you know, commonly known. Timothy McVeigh is known as the Oklahoma bomber. He blew up a building in Oklahoma City, killing over 100 public servants while they're just going about their work. Uh, and people say he's a Christian extremist. He doesn't represent Jesus well. Osama bin Laden is an Islamic extremist. No real connection between Muhammad. Now, there's an immediate problem with that parallel, and that is if you do the slightest bit of background on McVeigh, he is not a Christian. He says he is not a Christian. So to, to argue that he, who says he's not a Christian, writes a letter to the local equivalent of the Sydney Morning Herald in the week before he's executed saying, I'm not a Christian. Yes, I was, I was sent to church as a child. That doesn't prove anything. Um, and he said, if anything, I really believe in, in evolution and science. And I'm not going to use him as some sort of example. Well, there you go. That's what happens when you take science here. That's rubbish. All right? Um, but Osama bin Laden, clearly, if you've read his stuff, and you can, bases a lot of what he has done and his program and his personal self-sacrifice on both the teaching of the Quran, the Hadiths, and the example of the Prophet. There's simply no parallel between these two people, although people need to say that. Why? Because they've got a dogma that says it. We know all religions are the same. They've all got extremists. Not quite. Some of you may recognise this piece of art. Again, I won't mention the guy's name. He's only famous for this piece of work, really. Uh, it's called, affectionately, Piss Christ. It's called that because the work of art is uh, it's a jar which the artist urinated into, hence the golden yellowy sort of colour. Into it he, he bought a plastic um, crucifix, you know, the sort of the most sacred symbol in a sense to Christians, the cross, and he placed it in and took pictures of it and the artwork moved around the world into hundreds and hundreds of cities. It came to Melbourne, the, the actual artwork itself or often photographs of the artwork. Now, you may know that as a result of that, many people died as Christians around the world rioted because their most sacred symbol had been violated. The symbol of Jesus had been placed in urine. Could you be more offensive? And, of course, nobody died. I'm just kidding you. There were no violent, bloody revolutions. There were no angry young men and women in the street. Now, there were attacks on the work of art, which I'm not a great fan of. In Melbourne, it was attacked, and a, paint, a photo of it was attacked in France. The artist has not been, he has not had to go into secrecy and hiding. Uh, there is a difference in the way that Christians respond, say for example to the recent response to uh, that odd film, and I think frankly a misunderstood film, The Innocence of Muslims. It was not made, I don't think, having watched it a few times, and it's, it's absolute rubbish in terms of a movie, it's almost comical. But it's not made as an insult of Islam. It might insult some Muslims, if you watch it, the first few minutes of it explain it, it's made actually to explain why it is that Coptic Christians, the originally ancient people of Egypt, why they suffer so terribly in their own land, and they do. That's what it's about. It's an explanation of why their fellow Egyptians, who are lovely people like they are, are so brutal to them. But the response, as you know, was people have died in a number of countries. Muslims have died, non-Muslims have died, in the violent response to this. Although I want to suggest to you it is no more offensive than piss Christ. Although people, and 
and I don't think this will shock you, even if you're an atheist or whatever, you, you kind of know instinctively that Christians don't sort of do that stuff. And it's not just because they're Westerners. Um, Christians around the world did not respond in bloody violence. And they've had many other provocations they haven't gone for. Now, some people say, well, this is just because the reason why Muslims nowadays get violent in response to, you know, insults to the Prophet is because of, you know, the invasion of, you know, the Crusader Western forces in Iraq, verse 1, although, as you know, there were actually Islamic armies, uh, soldiers in that fight as well. Iraq, verse 2, and Afghanistan. See, Christians have invaded Islamic land. The house of war has invaded the house of Islam, and therefore... Uh, Muslims are upset and angry and that's why they get this acts as a trigger. The problem with that is what happened in 1988 when Salman Rushdie, himself an Indian-born Muslim, um, not a practicing Muslim, but, that's, but ethnically and, and religiously, that's his background, when he wrote the book Satanic Verses. And um, in this it's a novel and there are a number of allusions to the life of the prophet. And yet, as you know, he was given a fatwa, uh, the head of the um, uh, Shia community, um, said any, any person, any Muslim who kills him will have an absolute certain mark to heaven and it doesn't matter, he says, if um, Salman Rushdie should repent and become the holiest man that ever lived, it is imperative that every Muslim seek, him to, seek to kill him and send him to hell. Uh, it was quite... Six bookshops were blown up in England. There were another three attempts that were thwarted. Two bookshops were blown up in America. Uh, a number of the publishers were murdered on the streets, both in Japan and in parts of Europe. And this is long before that. And we could go way back to the 1300s where similar... I'm, I'm suggesting to you that there is a pattern of response and there, there may be a more logical argument than saying everything is an aberration. Now remember, the method we're following today is, as we have the last few weeks, not what does Christianity and Islam say, as you understand it. We're not interested in that. That's an interesting question, but it's not actually the main question. This is the question we've been trying to look at. What does Jesus, according to the earliest sources, say and do in the light of those people who hurt and offend and blaspheme and mock and jeer him? What does Muhammad, according to the earliest Islamic sources, the Quran, the Hadiths, and the earliest lives of the Prophet, particularly I've been reading through Ibn Ishaq. By the way, I'm going to, I've discovered I can actually buy a hard copy one instead of my internet, thousands of bits of paper printed out, and I'm going to buy couple of copies this week. If anyone would like to buy one with me from Amazon.com, just tell me and I'll group order for us. And I would think if you're a Muslim, you should read it. In fact, I'm surprised that anyone who thinks they're a Muslim doesn't read the earliest life of the prophet rather than some 20th century uh, retelling. So that's what we're doing, friends. We're looking at the... We're being radical in the sense of going back to the root. The radish is a vegetable. I have no idea why anybody would eat it. But it's, it, it means the root. That's what we're doing. We're going back to the source and the root and the DNA. That's the method we're following. And how do they respond when they're annoyed, attacked, threatened with violence, Jesus and Muhammad? So it's not so much what do the disciples do, although that's interesting, um, but we're going back to the source really quickly and unbelievably fast. Now, I've been criticised. I don't mind that. I, 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 you know, I'm, not a, I'm not a sensitive soul. But people have noted that I've often spent a lot more time on Islam and Muhammad than uh, on Jesus. Uh, and that's because I think um, most of us, well, I assumed, probably wrongly, that many of us in Australia have got some idea about Jesus. That is a mistake, which I've fallen into. Today I might be accused of going the other way, just frank, just a little bit. Well, what does Jesus say in his teaching and model by his life about how you should respond when someone is rude, violent, insulting, threatening to you? 
Now, my hunch is, even if you're not a Christian, you kind of know the answer to that already. Uh, I think it's one of those things people kind of know, but let's have a look anyhow. So it's just a, not, a, not a second-hand knowing, but a, perhaps an informed knowing. This fellow here, Mossab Hassan Yusuf, and I've got a website down at the bottom here you might like to go home and look at. A fascinating story. I'm about to read you a passage from Matthew, Matthew um, sorry, Luke 6. It's similar to the one in Matthew 5. This man's father, it's an extraordinary story, this man's father was one of the two founding fathers of Hamas, which is commonly regarded now as a terrorist organization by most countries. It uh, rules the, the Palestinian territories. It didn't start out that way. It started more like a YMCA sort of thing and became radicalized. And his father, who seems to be a deeply wonderful and lovely man in so many ways that this man obviously loves, although he's broken his heart. Uh, this man uh, was sort of heir apparent. He'd already gone to prison, an Israeli prison, for his part in Hamas and their attempt to crush it. He's written a book called... Um, what is it called? Anyhow, Son of Hamas. He, um, he was troubled by some things he saw on the inside of Islam, but still deeply Muslim. And then a dopey American tourist... Well, I shouldn't say that. A naive American tourist, not knowing who he was talking to, invited him to come to a Bible study. My hunch is if he knew who he was, he wouldn't have invited him to come, which would have been a shame. He comes and just listens. He's never heard the Bible. He knows Islamic teaching deeply. And he hears this passage, and I'll read it out to you. And I want you to hear it because this passage shattered this man's life. And this is a passage that I'm really sorry if you've heard it before because you may have never heard it. But I want you to hear it as from the lips of Jesus because it is. And this is what, this is Christianity 101. Basic. But there's there's nothing like it anywhere else in the world. It's, It's either the most beautiful and glorious bit of teaching or it's utter stupidity. Let me read it to you what Jesus says about how to treat those who annoy you and others. Jesus says, Luke 6, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whatever, whoever hits you on the other cheek, offer, to him the, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whatever, whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now, my hunch is we're going, really? Do you want me to take this seriously? Well, I don't. Jesus does. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. Verse 32, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful." Are they not the most extraordinary words? Is it not crystal clear, unless Jesus is an appalling hypocrite, how you should treat those who oppose you? How you should treat your enemies, those who hate you? And the way Jesus teaches, classically Jewish um, teaching, where he says, love your enemies. See, what does that mean? 
Does it mean I've got to feel nice about people who are hunting me down and persecuting? No, no, no. The next expression tells you what it means. Love your enemies. It's a classic Jewish way of doing things. They say the same thing in different words again and again until you get it. It's very helpful. Love your enemies. What's that mean? Do good to those who hate you. See, it's not actually about how you feel about them. He's not, he's not, Jesus is not silly enough to, to command you to feel loving feelings about someone who is making your life miserable. He's talking how you behave towards them. Do good to those who hate you. Who do you naturally pray for? Those who, who, who matter to you, your family, those who are good to you. No, 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 Jesus Pray for those who mistreat you. Who do you normally speak well to and about? Those who speak well to you. No, no, he says, bless those who curse you. It's wonderfully insane. You can understand why the imam said never. Jesus wouldn't have said that. Because it is either the most extraordinarily beautiful and divine teaching or it is ridiculous. It is without parallel in human history. Now, I'm going to run through some other statements. There's a, there's a quote which is on the sheet which I gave you, which I hope isn't distracting you. I just, uh, a quote from Christopher Hitchens, one of our famous atheists, now dead. He hates this teaching of Jesus. He says it is immoral and wicked and evil teaching. He says, I will not love my enemies. I will hate, I will hate them and I'll hunt them down and kill them. Gee, why have we got a problem in the world when everyone thinks that's so dumb? I mean, it, it works so well if we just keep hating each other, doesn't it? I mean, is that not a recipe for success? Hurt those who hurt you, hate those who've hated you. It just, it leads to peace worldwide. It works, right? Whether you're an Iman in Tehran or whether or not you're Christopher Hitchens, there's the same revulsion at the idea of not giving people what they flipping well deserve. Jesus goes on, this almost doesn't need to be said in case there's any doubt. When he's being arrested, one of his friends pulls out a, a knife which was common enough to carry in those days, and I'll mention that in a second, pulls out a little sword, a little daggery sword, and uh, attacks a guy. And Jesus says to him, put your sword back in its place. All who live by the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot call on my father? He'll provide me with 12 legions of angels. He's not saying, put the sword away, we can't win just now. Tactical retreat. He's saying, man, if that was my way, I could call God. If it's force you want, it's force I've got. But he says, we don't do that. That's not how we do things, by the sword. It's common enough. He says to Pontius Pilate, who thinks he's trialing Jesus, but actually it's poor old Pilate who's on trial. Verse 36, Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Any kingdom that uses and advances by the sword is from the earth. It's just another human thing. Jesus says, no. I had to pull him into line, but my servants don't fight for me. And Jesus indicating that he's not talking so much nice poetic stuff uh, about love your enemies and forgive those who hate you. When he's being nailed up, verse 34, at the point when he's actually being nailed up, it says, Jesus said, and the tense here is what is sometimes called the present continuous. It seems this is not a prayer that Jesus prayed once, but was praying repeatedly. Jesus was saying, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. I actually think that's almost enough to convince me he's the son of God. If you've ever had people deliberately, joyfully inflicting pain on you, to not curse them is miracle enough. But to be worried about the fact that they might be in trouble with God and to be praying for them and not yourself, not to be 
calling down the threats of an almighty just God upon their heads. But so extraordinary is the heart of Jesus that when he's being nailed to the wood, he's praying for the people who are doing it to him. That is extraordinary. It's so clear what Jesus does. But then one of the things I've discovered as I've been trying to understand Islam for the last couple of decades is that there is a movement, and, and it's a natural and instinctive thing in Islam, because they believe that Allah has sent all the prophets, including Jesus, and culminating in Muhammad, therefore Jesus and Muhammad will be the same. They must be. They come from the same God, according to Islamic doctrine. That's why the guy in Tehran is so clear Jesus wouldn't say that, because Muhammad says nothing like it. So there's a tendency when Muslims speak about um, Jesus, it's really good to read biographies about Muhammad written by Muslims before the last sort of 50 or 60 years. Because the latter ones being written now, the ones by Armstrong and people that Muslims will encourage you to read, they'll never encourage you to read Ibn Ishaq. In fact, when I was trying to hunt down a copy a couple of years ago, I was told by the largest Islamic bookshop in Australia, there is no English copy available. I said, maybe I should ring someone. They said, there's no point, mate. It doesn't exist. We'd, we'd have it here. Well, of course there are. <laughs> um, I, my hunch is they don't want us to read it, frankly. They want you to read Karen Armstrong's book, which is a joke, frankly, where, where, G, where Muhammad is made to be like Jesus. And Jesus is made to be like Muhammad. There's a desperate attempt to find violence against people in Jesus. And here are some of the verses that are used, touching on them ever so terribly briefly. This is perhaps the silliest one. It was actually used as an argument here last year. Um, Jesus is he's getting the disciples ready. It's the night before he dies. And he's going to send them out again. He says, when I, sent you, uh, when I sent you without purse, bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, the disciples answered. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it. Also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. He's sending them on a much longer journey to the ends of the earth, yea, even to New Zealand. Right? And he says, you're going to need more stuff for this mission, including a sword. Ah, a sword. Now you're talking. Um, good. But of course, the word actually means the sword. It's, it's more a knife or a dagger. And friends, if you've ever... I don't ask if you're going on a P&O cruise, something like that. But, but if you've ever gone for a walking sort of tour through the bush, you will take toilet paper, well wrapped in plastic, uh, matches, and you'll flipping will take a knife, won't you? And I caught a train up to Ningen the other day, beautiful Bogenshire. And I, I took a knife. I used it in the train to cut up my chicken. Didn't want to, I didn't want to get there sick, so I didn't want to eat food uh, from the carries there. And I used it up there a few times, and at one stage, the blokes, some of the Christian blokes there were trying to open a bottle of port to have a little glass together. No one, there was no opener at the place we were at, and I, I got a knife! I became a hero for a second. Right? What Jesus is saying is, get ready for a longer journey. You need a knife when you hit the bush, that's what he's saying. But people say, no, 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 no. Dia said here when he was here last year, he said, no, no, what happened is that Jesus, he, he's going to fight. He is going to fight. But the temple guard come and they're Roman soldiers. Well, he hadn't realised the Romans were going to be there. They're better than the Jewish soldiers. So he said, I'll put your sword away, boys. Problem with that is the temple guard are Jews, not Romans. I mean, it's just a nonsense. And look at what, look at what the response is, verse 38. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. Jesus says, that's enough. I mean, just think about it, friends. He doesn't say, we've got two Bren guns. 12 guys and two Bren guns might do it. If you're fighting a battle with swords, it's kind of helpful if it's not one sword every six person. Right? Jesus, the great military general, says, yeah, two between 12, that's plenty, really. Right? 
It's just silly. He's not talking about that. It's a desperate attempt to try and make Jesus a man of violence. You might like to ask why. Why do Muslims want to do this with Jesus? I think it's very interesting. Why would they twist? Here's another one. It was mentioned here a few weeks ago. Now people will say, Muslims say, Jesus says, bring my enemies here before me and behead them. Is what they know. It doesn't say that. It says, bring them here before me and kill them in front of me. Now, at one level, I want to use C.S. Lewis's phrase, if people make comments like that, they shouldn't read adult literature. This is a parable in Luke 19. If you seriously want to take everything that Jesus puts in the mouths of characters in parables or something Jesus says, you've got Jesus in the chapter before this saying, I, fear, I do not respect God or man. Well done. Genius. It's a character in a parable. This is a character in a parable. Right? And yes, it's got a strong edge to it. And yes, there will be a fierce judgment at the end of time. We've talked about that yesterday. But to make out that Jesus is saying that in the present tense is just dishonest. It's mischievous. Lastly, the famous sword verse. Again, this is for adults only. Don't assume that I came to bring a sword. Uh, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Grammaticians say this is what they call a result clause, not a purpose clause. He doesn't come in order, but the result of his coming will be a sword. What does he mean by that? Well, the next verse, always read it in context. The next verse, context is everything. Jesus goes on to say, I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, Jesus is not anti-family. That's just failing to understand the way Jesus teaches. He constantly engages in hyperbole. It's what Jews do, and particularly Jewish rabbis. He's saying the net effect of my coming in the short term will be division. And friends, if you want to see that happen, just see what happens when a Muslim person becomes a Christian. Uh, You can see it on YouTube, what happened recently in... Where did the Arab Spring begin? Tunisia, is it? Tunisia, I think it was. I think it began in Tunisia. And on Egyptian television, there was a terrible thing that's up on YouTube if you want to horrify yourself a man who became a Christian who was executed and it was all on television for as they cut his head off. Jesus is saying, when light comes in a dark place, darkness will fight back. Uh, but he is not calling anyone to take up a sword. That is just uh, perverse. But he is saying, don't expect if you become a Christian all your problems will come to an end. In some ways, they will only intensify. Now, very briefly, on to Islam. I think the teaching of Jesus is very clear. Um, you may remember, we watched it here a few weeks ago, the My Peace ad, uh, paid for and put up by Muslims in, in order to try and get Australians to think afresh about Islam. And they put three statements up, uh, one from the Hadiths, which was always worth remembering, that for a Muslim to put up a statement from the sayings of the Prophet is like putting up something from the Quran. Two from the Quran, one about looking after your parents. This was the key one, This was the, where they had the visual image of a lifesaver. This is a, a nice enough statement. Whosoever killeth a human being, it shall be as if he'd killed all mankind. Whosoever saveth the life of one man, it shall be as if he'd saved the life of all mankind. So it sounds nice. Don't kill, but save. Now, I just, when the ad came out, I just went and got my Quran. You know, you should always read literature in context, and here's the context. Slightly smaller, I'm sorry. And a crucial thing is left out, and there was no indication on the text that it was left out with dots, that what it says is, Whosoever killeth a human being for other than manslaughter or corruption in the earth. Manslaughter is fairly... So it's saying the killing it's talking about is it's not including people who've killed someone or people who've corrupted the earth. Um, that's a broadish category. It shall be as if he killed... So that, that's left out. 
More importantly, verse 33 is left out. I want to suggest to you what we get in the Quran and in the teachings, in the sayings, the hadiths, and in the life of the Prophet is a very mixed message about the place of violence. And you see it here in the verse that our fellow Australian Muslims chose to put up as their great statement. The very next verse says, The punishment for those who fight against Allah and his messenger and strive to make mischief in the land is only this, that they should be murdered or crucified or their hands and their feet should be cut off on opposite sides or they should be imprisoned. This shall be as a disgrace for them in this world and in the hereafter they shall have a grievous chastisement. Now, I want to stress, I feel like a rat doing this, but they chose that verse as one of, as, you know, out of the thousands of verses they could as arguably, well, they only put two from the Quran up to indicate what a beautiful book it was and that is a nice statement. I think what's perfectly clear when you start reading the Quran with anything like an open mind is that there's a mixed message. There are some beautiful statements. There are some worrying statements. And you see that in the life of the Prophet himself. And I just... Uh, we'll leave that one out. That'll harrow you. Um, you might not know that Muhammad believes that his death was a result of poisoning. Some Shia believe that he was poisoned by his wife Aisha and the guy took over after him, Abu Bakr. I don't believe that. And I don't have enough to know. But that's what they would argue. But the general position of Muslims has been that he, was, he died, as Muhammad said because he was poisoned by a Jewish woman three years earlier. Now, some medical people think, well, it's unlikely that the activity that Muhammad did between the poisoning and his eventual death, that it would have been that poisoning, because that's apparently how poisoning doesn't tend to work, but I don't know. But just read what the earliest sources say. From the Hadiths from Bukhari, a Jewess brought a poisoned sheep for the prophet who ate from it. She was brought to the prophet, and he was... uh, and he. And he was asked, shall we kill her? The broader story, which is recounted a number of times in the early, in in Ibn Ishaq and other places, is he has conquered this Jewish village that we mentioned last week. Um, They were off to work in the date farms and the Islamic armies turned up from Medina and the men were all killed, some tortured to death, according to the Islamic sources, and the women and children uh, moved into slavery. One of them, for some reason or other, Muhammad allowed this Jewish woman to cook for him that night or soon after and she asked Muhammad what joint of the the lamb he liked the most and she put poison into that joint. One of his friends had eaten more meat from that joint before he did and he was sick and Muhammad said the bone told him that there was poison in it. And beautifully Muhammad, according to the earliest sources, doesn't say to kill her. I think many of us would have been provoked probably if someone tried to kill you and was making you crook and has killed probably one of your friends. That's I think that's quite beautiful that he doesn't. But interesting to hear just side by side her explanation. The apostle of Allah sent for Zainab, that's the woman, and said to her, what induced you to do what you have done? She replied, you have done to my people what you have done. You have killed my father, my uncle and my husband. She seems to think that's provocation. So I said to myself, if you are a prophet, the foreleg will inform you. And others have said, if you are just a king, we will get rid of you. So, just in that little story, there's a model of quite benevolence, but there's also the fact that the whole thing is surrounded by a terrible story where 800 Jewish men were killed that day. And so what you have in the, in the uh, Quran, 
and in the sayings and in the earliest biographies is a mixed message, which is why in the end Muslims themselves will often argue about what real Islam is. Because Osama bin Laden has a truckload of the most authoritative statements in the Quran backing what he's doing. And I do want to say to you, if you've never done it, read Surah 9. Read the ninth chapter of the... Now, it has a context, but just read it to get the feel of the place of violence within legitimate... And that is the, that is the final uh, verse or chapter revealed. And it is, uh, it is not in any way checked or changed by anything that comes after. There's a sameness about Jesus. There's a mixedness about Muhammad's response. That's why the Iman in the end, um, and, and the BBC man can have the argument. What you believe totally controls how you behave. It's a modern foolishness that says it doesn't matter what you believe. But what you believe is determined by who you believe. And the question for you and for me is to work out, who, who do I think is worthy of my trust? You, with your infinite wisdom, culturally educated and culturally conformed? Muhammad, who will tell you how to submit to the will of Ali. You can't know God, but you can submit to him. Or Jesus? Uh, and that's, that's the question. We've been looking at what Jesus says and does and what Muhammad says and does. Cut Jesus anywhere and he bleeds love because God is love, according to, according to the New Testament. I'll shut up and give you some time for questions. Now that clock there is owned by the Anglican Church, so you can ignore it. Um, we've actually got four minutes technically. Okay. Um, and if you do need to go early, that's okay. And I think I will put some of these up on our Facebook site where some of the questions that were asked, particularly on a Wednesday a few weeks ago, um, that we didn't get through, we had a go at. There's basically um, two sorts of questions here, and, and they're excellent. The, um, let me just read one, which repre- is representative of the other two coming after. What about the Old Testament verses, such as those commanding that people be put to death, that the unfaithful be put to death? Is that not mixed messages? That's a very good question. And... Um, I'm conscious of the fact that we're shortchanging everyone in the talk of this shortness uh, of a subject of this depth. There is, in a sense, hear me carefully, you can quote me, misquote me if you like, uh, there is more violence in the Bible than there is in the Quran. There's not more violence in the Bible than there is in the early histories of Muhammad. It takes over there. And that is because the Quran is not telling history. People really have very little idea of how different the books are. The Quran is simply statement after 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 statement statement from Allah. Now, there are in it calls to take up the sword, to to pursue the Jews, and there'll be times when the Mount Rocks will say, you know, Muslim, there is a Jew hiding behind me, come quickly and kill him and stuff like that. Surah 9, and Surah 8 and Surah 5, it's all over the place. There There is one moment in the history of Israel where the, the, the children of Abraham are called on to kill and that is the people who are in the land of Israel. They're not given the land the descendants of Abraham's 400 years earlier because God says that the people in the land have not sinned sufficiently to lose the right to live in the land. One of the things you see in the Old Testament is at times God will use one nation to discipline another. So the Babylonians are used as the rod of God's anger against his own children. The Israelites are called on to go in and to take over that land and to wipe out the Amorites and these people. And it's scary when you read it because the judgment of God is scary. That's the one moment they're called to do. There is no enduring call on any Jew 
or any Christian to go on with the use of the sword. It is to conquer that land. The other battles you read are because the Old Testament is telling history. And friends, you know the 20th century was supposed to be the great century of peace, was the bloodiest century in history. You tell the history of any people and it's a history of wars. That's because of sin, sadly. So yes, the Old Testament does have one particular moment. But Israel was not given any call to go out beyond their borders and spread the faith of Israel. Islam is. Within a hundred years, the empire of faith, as it's sometimes called, of Israel, was all the way into Spain, all the way down to India, and was pressing, beginning to the long press, it eventually meant that it, it conquered Constantinople, etc., etc. Um, some Muslims say all of these wars are wars of defence. You can't realistically argue that you've got a bunch based in the middle of Saudi Arabia, what we call Saudi Arabia, and in order to defend yourself, you have to conquer Spain and nearly conquer Paris and get driven back from the gates of Vienna, once crush Rome and then the second time lose. These are not wars. The Roman Empire, which did a similar thing, one little city got all the way to Scotland, couldn't conquer. The Scots were too strong. But they nearly they tried. The Romans also said that they never fought a war of aggression. The Americans, bless their little socks, the USA, it thinks it's never fought a war of aggression either. How you get from being you know, around Boston, New York, to owning the whole of that continent without fighting one single war of aggression is beyond me. Everyone says, no, 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 we fight wars of peace and defence. Nonsense. But that is entirely consistent with the life and example and the explicit commands that come through Muhammad. There is nothing like that for the Jews ongoingly and there is nothing like that for the Christians. So yes, there's violence in the Old Testament and lots of it and it's harrowing. The last question which I'll be much briefer on is this. Jesus and Muhammad both claim that the message is from God. True. What evidence is there from Muhammad and Jesus, if any? Well, you can simply ask this is answered quite explicitly and I think we touched on this on the first um, discussion three weeks ago and you can listen to that on the net. Um, the evidence for Muhammad is the Quran. That an uneducated and illiterate man as the Muslims rejoice in telling us that he was should come up with such a fine book. And one of the challenges that the Quran gives is can anyone come up with a chapter better? And friends, if you are a Christian, I know there are some Christians here, if you are a Christian... Just, and, and you, sometimes I know Muslims have said this to Christians and they freeze, just quote your favourite Bible passage. Uh, Psalm 23, John 10, 1 Corinthians 13, frankly there is nothing like it in the Quran. Um, but that, that's Muhammad's test, it's the Quran. It's the, it is, and I don't mean to, I'm not being rude, that is exactly the same test that Mormons say. Where is the test that Joseph Smith is a prophet from God? Read the book. I, I frankly don't find either book all that compelling. But you should read it for yourself. Jesus, on the other hand, is twice asked for proof and twice gives the same answer. It's the same answer the apostles give. Tear apart this body and in three days' time I'll rebuild it. You know, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and then came out, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days. It's the resurrection. And that's what the early Christians say. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And we are liars about God. But we've testified that God raised him from the dead and we've seen him. It's very different. You can take your brain to the history question rather than intuition from the heart, which frankly does lead humans into very different directions. I hope I haven't been unfair on Muhammad. You're not allowed to bear false witness against your neighbour. 
I've tried to be fair. Um, do educate me if I haven't. Blackpower at gmail.com um, and we'll put some of these on our Facebook page. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.